listening to America's Web Radio. And now time for the Classic Car Show with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber. Good morning. Welcome to the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, we're talking cars with Kim, and we have an incredible guest this morning, Leslie Kendall from the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles. Uh, really, as far as I'm concerned, the premier automotive museum uh, in the country. I go once a year, and literally it takes me an entire day. I'm there for an entire day, and I could probably come back a second day and not see everything. Uh, the museum was remodeled, reopened at the end of 2015. Uh, the building itself is worth seeing and literally stops traffic in the middle of downtown Los Angeles. Um, it's, uh, it's wrapped in stainless steel ribbon, if you can believe that, and we'll, uh, we'll let Leslie describe that a little bit better and tell us how it came to be. Are you there, Leslie? You bet, Kim. Uh, thanks. Thanks for calling. Um, we're we're right at the corner of Wilshire and Fairfax in a building that was originally built in 1961 for uh, Cebu Department Store, real high end Japanese department store. But what was right for 1961 isn't really right for the 2000s anymore. And people were driving by and kind of passing us right by, not even noticing the building. So we engaged Cone Pedersen Fox, an architect. Uh, architect firm out of New York to kind of um, uh, design a wrap for the building that 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 is a, a great deal of ribbons that that, that surround it. It's kind of ribbons for a new package, as it were. And these ribbons they imply motion and fluidity and, and sensuality, and and they really give us a presence uh, on the third busiest intersection in all of Los Angeles. It uh, it certainly does, and you know, it's just the uh, it almost looks like the reflection from the stainless steel lights it up. And the last time I did the tour, I guess, was right after it opened. And uh, they mentioned that there's 140,000 screws holding the ribbon to the building. Um, but it certainly uh, certainly does its job giving the feeling of motion. And as soon as you walk in, or at least that's where it was placed when I was there, um, is a very fast red car who's, Big tail fins and paint scheme absolutely reminded me of the design of the building, and that is the uh, the 1946 Ford from Grease Lightning. Can you tell us a little bit about that car? Oh, you bet. Uh, this is a car that was done by George Barris um, uh, for for Grease, the uh, the movie, and and actually ours uh, was in the stage play. Um, uh, it's got a transparent hood. It's got it's got uh, 30, 40 inch fins in the back. It's just it's everything that a teenager would want their car to be back in the fifties. And uh, is that a stock engine in the uh, forty six Ford? Uh, it's definitely not a stock engine. Uh, it was made to look, though, a little bit more um, modified than it is. It's really because it's a Hollywood car. It's, it was built more for reliability and for driving around the, you know, the. Um, the theater to get from one um, one area to another um, than it was for going down the going down the drag strip, but it does run and drive. We've had it out, and it, it you know it does what it's supposed to do. It stops traffic. Is it a loud car? It, it's actually not that loud. It's it's pretty bearable. It, it's it's aggressive sounding, but uh, you can still carry on the conversation. 
<laughs> well, speaking uh, speaking of Hollywood and uh, another actor who uh, certainly did his share of uh, crow movies, Elvis Presley. Um, you've got a bright, bright yellow Pantera that uh, has quite a story. Can you tell us about that? Well, we sure do. It's a 1971 Pantera, first year for Pantera, uh, built, pardon me, bought by Elvis in 1974 for his girlfriend, Linda Thompson. Um, one morning, uh, the car wouldn't start. Uh, apparently, it was maybe a little bit too cold or something. Elvis pulled out his personal firearm and shot the car three times uh, right through the driver's door window. Uh, two of the bullets um, hit the steering wheel rim, and those scars are still there to this day. Uh, the other bullet hit the floor, and you can see it, but you have to pull up the carpet to look at it. But uh, anybody that walks up and looks at that car can still see the, the uh, two bullet holes on the, uh, on the steering wheel. Where did you find such an interesting uh, piece of memorabilia? Uh, well, that car was actually acquired by uh, Mr. Peterson in a private transaction about 15 or so years ago. Uh, collector was was letting go of his collection. He bought the uh, he bought the entire collection, and that car was uh, part of it. Well, it's good that uh, at least Elvis doesn't know that his little temper tantrum is uh, now in a museum. It was uh, who knows where it was um, before his death. But uh, if I was him, I'd certainly hate to see something like that in a museum. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, Elvis, I think, had a good sense of humor. Maybe maybe he would have understood. I don't know. Those bullet holes and sense of humor, I don't know. But uh, we'll, uh, we'll let that one go. Um, speaking of uh, exotic Ford power, um, another fascinating car um, is the Ford GT40 Mark III, which is one of very, very few GT40s actually built as a streetcar. Most of them were race cars. Um, so tell us a little bit about this one. Well, that's right. Uh, GT40s were built in four different series, and this is the Mark III series, the third of the, the four. Uh, it's it's more a driver's car than any of the others are. It was actually sold for road use. It's, uh, uh, as GT40s go, a fairly civilized car. Uh, this one is painted a shade of uh, metallic silver blue that you would not find on any racing car. So that kind of speaks to its um, road-going um, um, intentions, uh, as as it were, uh, but still very much a very much a uh, um, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. But when I was at the museum, I was standing next to uh, a man who seemed pretty knowledgeable about Fords, but he was telling his wife um, that it was a big block car, and as far as I know, it's not. Um, there's a uh, there's a two eighty nine under the hood. Is that right? That's right. Uh, you know, the Ford 289 was was no slouch of an engine. That was a very powerful engine when when tuned properly, uh, and and our GT does indeed have that. 427s, you know, were in, were installed in GT40s, um, but but ours has the has the venerable uh, 289. Uh, a 427, I can't even imagine um, in that position in the car in the streetcar, um, a You've got this car. You've got the Pantera, uh, both kind of uh, kind of mid-engine cars. Um, I've never been in a GT40, but I've ridden in a Pantera a few times, and it was extremely loud and extremely hot. Um, now I know that the GT40 that you have actually has a luggage compartment, which 
you certainly couldn't put anything in there that couldn't get hot. Um, when you ride in the Pantera and the GT40, give us a little comparison in terms of how hot they are, um, how noisy they are, and how they handle. Which uh, which car do you prefer? Well, you know what? Uh, preference depends on what kind of driving experience you're after. Uh, the Pantera, because it was uh, intended to be a driver's car, it was designed for the road. Um, it's it's a lot more civilized. You have roll down windows. You've got um, you know comfortable, more comfortable seats. You've got a uh, a little bit more um, uh, upright driving position. When you get into the GT40, that's a race car that was adapted for road use. So you've got a car that's essentially meant to meant to compete at Le Mans, um, but was um, kind of detuned a bit. So to make it more tractable on the road, and indeed, um, it, it was such an aggressive car. Not many were sold; only only seven, um, and four of those were left-hand drive, like the car in our collection. Um, Price-wise, do you know where the uh, selling price of the Pantera was compared to the GT40 back in the sixties? Well, sixty-seven and seventy-one, I guess. Um, the, the Pantera, I believe, was in was in the teens. I think it was maybe uh, twelve or fourteen thousand dollars, which you know, in the early seventies was a little bit of money. Um, I think a Ford GT would set you back a little bit less than that, but again, money was, um, I, I think, more <laughs> more valuable uh, back uh, back in the day. Yeah, and in you know, if you think about you know, Panteras were sold in Lincoln Mercury dealers, I guess. And even the the top of the line Lincoln, I would imagine the Pantera was was pricier than anything Lincoln had in 1971. Well, you're right about that. Lincoln, you know, Lincoln's in 1971 were several thousand dollars, but they weren't, you know, weren't, weren't in the teens of thousands of dollars. So, <laughs> so this was there was there was a little bit of a difference between uh, the Pantera and and the best Lincoln. You have to keep in mind the Pantera has a lot of Italian content and a lot of handwork in it. And and that that could drive up the price of a vehicle pretty quickly. Yeah, that's what I call. I have a Sunbeam, several Sunbeam Tigers that are one of two of them are two eighty nine powered, and those in the Pantera are what I call the original hybrids. Um, they were basically European or British cars powered by American engines. And up until maybe ten years ago, I called them hybrids. And then. Uh, I guess the Prius came out and a few other things, and the word hybrid has taken on an entirely new meaning. But uh, right. as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> my Tigers and your Pantera are the original uh, the original hybrids. Um, we've got uh, about two minutes left before we need to go to a commercial break. Um, while we're on Fords, um, there's uh, all kinds of talk about the, um, the new Ford GT. Uh, it just won big at Le Mans. Um, Ford brought back the GT as opposed to the GT40. Um, they kind of switched those around. But Ford brought back the um, GT about 10 years ago. Um, those cars have become very collectible. They've taken off in value. They only made them for two or three years. Uh, now they're back again with um, another Ford GT. Uh, they were one at Le Mans. And uh, when I was at your museum in January, you had a sort of a prototype there. Um, in the last couple minutes of uh, this segment, can you tell us a little bit about the prototype? Well, you bet. The prototype very much evokes the look and, and the feel of the original car. 
but it's but it's very much a modern car. Uh, modern, in, it's got modern design cues. That you can tell it's a much safer car to drive. It's much more stable, because um, although our car is just a mock-up, um, the cars, the road-going cars that are going to spring from it, um, are going to have all the modern um, safety and drivability enhancements that that new cars have that that they couldn't have dreamt of in the in the 60s for the GT40. I can't wait to get my uh, my my hands on one of those to get behind the wheel. I, I think it's just going to be a fantastic car. Now the original GT40, uh, you said was 40 inches tall, which I didn't know until we spoke today. Um, is that also true with the Ford GT? Um, I, I would say that the GT40, I think, is slightly taller than that. Um, it's more commodious car. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby, the first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind, Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. Buzz off with Lawyer Liz. Join me each week, Wednesdays at 2 o'clock, as we talk drones, Internet of Things, and technology. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about antique car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. We're back with the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio, Talking Cars with Kim, and our guest, Leslie Kendall from the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles, which if you have not been there, you need to put it on your bucket list. Um, one of my favorite cars uh, and something that I first saw when they brought it to the Pinehurst Concours uh, at the Pinehurst Golf Course is Steve McQueen's XKSS. Um, most people recognize it from its racing cousin, the Jaguar T-Type. Um, this is, again, like we were just talking about, it's a road car. It's absolutely stunning. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the car, Leslie? Absolutely, Kim. Uh, it's one of only a tiny number built, 16 to be exact, and they're derived, like you said, from Jaguar racing cars, the D-type racer, uh, to be specific, that was extremely successful for Jaguar at Le Mans. Um, when the D-type got um, less and less successful at racing, uh, Jaguar decided to turn a remaining number of them that, that, that were unsold into proper road-going cars. So they, they fitted them with full-width windshields, a, a convertible folding top, um, a, a luggage rack for carrying a suitcase, uh, bumperettes, and, and a couple of other little niceties that made it just a little bit easier to, uh, uh, a little bit more civilized to drive on the, on the road. Now it's a uh, it's a gorgeous it's British racing green. Um, I've heard that when Steve McQueen bought the car, um, it wasn't green. Um, I know that a lot of what 
he owned was his, I guess, his camper truck, um, a lot of his motorcycles. He was a big green guy. What did, uh, what did the XKSS look like when it rolled out of the uh, Jaguar factory? Well, the car was originally painted white with a red interior. Um, McQueen bought the car, didn't like the white with the red, and had it painted um, the British Racing Green, which is perfect for that car. That's what most of them ran at Le Mans. Uh, and then he had Tony Nancy, a real famous uh, upholsterer who did a lot of racing cars, a lot of dragsters and hot rods. He had Tony Nancy do the upholstery uh, for the car in black. And he had Von Dutch, the, the kind of counterculture artist from the, uh, uh, the 60s and 70s, do um, a, a, a special glove box door. Most of the, well, virtually all of the XKSSs came with just a little hole in the, in the, um, in the dashboard where you put your gloves or, you know, change or, or, or your scarf or something. Uh, but none of them had doors. And I guess uh, Steve McQueen liked to accelerate um, um, quite uh, aggressively. <laughs> and when you do that, stuff's going to fly out of your glove box unless you have a door on it. So I can see uh, 100% the logic behind it. And I guess when Von uh, Dutch is a friend, you can get uh, get anything you want. Um, I noticed when I saw the car that it's got the um, solid knockoff wheels, which I just think are phenomenal. Dunlop made those. Um, every time I'd seen them, they're on these, they're on the um, MGA Deluxes. They were always painted. Um, these were polished. Uh, do you know if uh, the car came with polished wheels, or was that something that Steve McQueen added just because he liked the look? Well, uh, XASS Jaguars were, were so few and far between, I think you could probably get anything you want from the factory. But Steve did have these polished. Um, he, he, he liked the look of the, of the polished metal, and they suit the car so nicely. It's, it's, it's really the perfect complement to the, the rest of the car. Did, uh, did the museum acquire that from his estates, or is a, was it a gift to the museum? How did you happen to come on the car? Well, Mr. Peterson acquired it. Uh, he acquired it uh, personally um, from a, a collector who who acquired it and uh, and then restored it um, to its to absolute perfect original configuration. Um, but he had the sensibility to leave certain things about the car alone, like the Tony Nancy upholstery. Uh, when he restored it, he didn't take it down to the last nut and bolt and put it all back together, but he was very sensitive about what needed refurbishing and what didn't. There's a lot of original McQueen that's that's still in that car um, and uh, brought back to exactly the, the condition and configuration that uh, it would have been in had McQueen still owned it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, uh, I've heard the car well, and it sounds phenomenal. I had the pleasure of... Uh, talking to Chad McQueen a little bit about it, and you could tell uh, just from listening to Chad how passionate uh, Steve was about the car. He said his father even did, I guess, most of his own maintenance, which which is very interesting. Well, a lot of people wouldn't have, but Steve, he tackled that. He was he wasn't ashamed to, or wasn't afraid to put the hood up on his cars and and then get in there and do some tinkering. He was as interested in the mechanics about the vehicle as he was in, in the driving and handling. Mm-hmm. That's uh, a fascinating guy. He uh, he was. Um, There's a car that when I was uh, at the museum, it was in the vault, um, which is kind of the uh, 
the lower level holding area for the massive amount of cars that the Peterson Museum owns and can't uh, can't have on display. They just can't display everything they own. Uh, but a car down there that I never thought I'd see in my lifetime was a 64 Porsche 901. Of course, the little crowd on the tour, I'm sure, saw it and thought it was a 911. But uh, there's a little bit of a story as to why it was a 901, and very few cars were before Porsche was forced to rename them 911s. Can you tell us that story? Well, absolutely. Um, when Porsche decided that they needed a car to replace the 356, um, you know, they immediately got to work on it. They, they wanted something that looked like a 356 in a way that kind of evoked the Porsche um, um, the sensibility and the theme and the feel of a, of a genuine Porsche. Um, so they ended up doing a, um, a number of, of development models, um, what you could, I guess, call, in a way, pilot production cars. Uh, they only did um, about 82 of them. Um, uh, and just a tiny number survived because, again, they were all, they were all ex in a way, experimental. Porsche didn't really expect them to last. They just wanted to do um, some of the development work with them. But they called them the 901. And uh, rumor has it that Peugeot told Porsche that they couldn't use that number designation, um, claiming that they owned every three-digit number model where zero was the middle number, like the Peugeot 202 and the 604 and the something oh something, um, and Porsche said, well, okay, all right, that's, that's fine. Uh, we'll call it the 911 then. And all of the, quote, production cars that were built um, onward were called 911s. Do you know where they got 911 from? I don't know. I, I think it's just it, it just changed a zero to a one. It's it's. One? I think it was as simple as that. From nine oh one to nine one one. I've never uh, I've never heard anything different. So that uh, that must be the case. Um, then just around the corner from that car in the vault was a just huge row of what I think you call the presidential collection. Um, fascinating, maybe. 10 or so cars. Um, can you touch on those for us? Sure. Uh, we've got a little uh, head of state collection um, of little. They're actually huge cars. We've, we've got uh, um, a Chaika, which in Russian means seagull, and that was uh, formerly owned by Khrushchev. Uh, we've got a, a limousine that was owned by the Panchen Lama. It's called the Hong Chi, which is red flag, was made in China. We've got the um, a presidential 1942 uh, Lincoln that was owned by Franklin Delano Roosevelt and then used uh, later by, by Truman. And we also have a Chrysler Imperial Parade Phaeton that was used by uh, Eisenhower for a period of time and also Nixon. Uh, we have about another uh, half, half a dozen more. So we have quite a, we have quite a, a, a marvelous collection of head-of-state cars. Now, are they restored or are most of them in their original condition? The only head-of-state car that we have that's, that's been restored is the 42 Lincoln that I was mentioning. It was a little bit um, rough around the edges, and the prior owner um, 
it had to bring it back to to presentable condition, and we bought it in the in the condition that it currently uh, remains, which is to say, very nice and 100% authentic. It's 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 really a marvelous car, a very very heavy car. Um, it's got glass that's that's nine panes thick, so it's extremely thick glass. And this we have to remember that that car was ordered the day after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, um, when. America finally realized that there are people people out there that are really mad at us that that are out to do you know that might be out to do the president harm and that he needed to be protected more you know more the than he had ever been up to that time. Sure, sure. We still still didn't think about the fact that convertibles probably weren't the best transportation for presidents, but uh, right. the, uh, that that came after Kennedy. Um, one of my favorite cars is the Parade uh, Chrysler Imperial Phaeton, which is kind of I think it's white with a red interior, if I remember. Um, and Eisenhower used it, Nixon used it. Do you happen to know um, as the uh, presidents came and went, were they given the latitude of selecting a new car, purchasing a new car, or did they just kind of have to take what was in the fleet? Um, uh, some presidents, I think, were pickier than others. Um, a lot of them were, were perfectly fine to take whatever was in the presidential um, garage. Uh, I think others could could decide what they what they wanted, because when you're president of the United States, you, know, you want to you know, you're you're out there to project not only the um, the uh, personality and the and the well-being of your nation, but you know, again, like any other car, I think you want to project your own your own personality. And some presidents are Lincoln presidents, some are are Ford. Pardon me, some are um, Cadillac, some are Chrysler or Imperial, and and uh, the, you know, the earliest presidential vehicles that actually Pierce Arrow made in made in Buffalo. They don't make them anymore. They stopped in 1938. But um, you know, again, that was uh, you know presidential presidential choice. Now, were these cars um, auctioned when they were no longer needed by the government, or were they just sold privately to collectors? Um, how did uh, how did they come to be in the Peterson Museum? Uh, well, I think it's it's really interesting. I think some of them, uh, for example, the forty two Lincoln that we're talking about, it was offered to another museum, but the museum declined to accept it. I think it was the um, I'm not sure what that museum was. I believe it might have been the Smithsonian, um, and you know, which which I understand, the Smithsonian can't take every everything. It's um, hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about antique car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. 
You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. We're back to the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio with Leslie Kendall from the Peterson Automotive Museum. And uh, this, is, uh, this is an interesting segment. Um, everybody thinks front-wheel drive is fairly new, um, you know, at least uh, maybe, from, maybe from the 70s, something like that. But uh, there's a car in the Peterson Museum that started it all for front-wheel drive, so it's significant there. And it's also painted in very bright colors, uh, kind of a maybe a lavender and a purple uh, with gray pinstriping. And uh, everybody, I think, assumes that all cars were dark colors until maybe the maybe the fifties, uh, but they weren't. Um, they were bright colors. Uh, there were a lot of car manufacturers in the twenties and thirties. They needed a way to set themselves apart. And that was also really the beginning of the Concours d'Elegance, which uh, at that time was a show for new cars and fashion, basically. It was a very, very fancy event where you could show off your your brand-new, very special car and your designer clothes, as opposed to today when we think of a Concours d'Elegance, still a very fancy car show, but it is a way to display older, restored cars. So, uh, Leslie, if you'll tell us a little bit about the, uh, the 1929 Ruxton, that would be great. Well, well, Kim, the Ruxton that we have in our collection is is a roadster. It's one of only four Ruxton roadsters known to survive. And it, it painted uh, kind of kooky colors, just like you said. Um, the, and... The colors really are correct for the era. I don't think that car was painted those colors when it was new. But they certainly, like I said, are, are correct. You could have had them painted those colors. Um, people think, do, do indeed think that cars are just black or dark gray or very dark blue or maroon. Um, that wasn't always the case. There, there are people out there who, you know, wanted something that was a little bit more flamboyant, a little more more special looking, and you could specify really just about any any color or any any color combination as long as you uh, had the imagination to and the um, setting of the jaw to follow it through now the front wheel drive in the Ruxton did that was that only on the roadster was it on the entire Ruxton line did it catch on and what were what were the benefits of the car other than what we think of which is really handling well, Ruxton, um, all Ruxtons were indeed front-wheel drive. That was part of what made them so special. Uh, and because they were front-wheel drive, you didn't have to accommodate a drive shaft that ran under the passenger compartment. Uh, for that reason, you could lower the entire car, and it was one of the very first cars that was so low, it didn't need running boards. It's a very fleet car. It's a very low-slung car. And actually, that lowness, coupled with the front-wheel drive, does help handling a great deal. Um, to, to drive that car, uh, the, the advertising of the day says that it claws its way around corners, and I can vouch for that. It, it really does. You, you, you can feel the front wheels working, that car pulling it through the corners, pulling it around the corners instead of, instead of the rear wheels pushing you. It, it, it's a unique feeling. And you can tell the front-wheel drive, you know, they had it, it was a little primitive. Keep in mind that this was developed in the 1920s before all the engineering was worked out for for constant velocity joints and, and, and those kinds of things. But, but uh, honestly, it, it's, it, 
it's a marvelous driving experience, and I, I really enjoy my time behind the wheel of that car. Now, compared to the cars of the day, um, sort of elite cars of the 20s and 30s, how was a Ruxton priced? A Ruxton was priced up there. It was an upper middle class car, definitely. Um, it, it was it was about a three thousand dollar, thirty five hundred dollar car in the day. Uh, keeping in mind that you know it, that period of time, uh, a Ford would set you back several hundred dollars, maybe you know seven eight hundred dollars. Um, so you're talking a bunch of Fords or one Ruxton, and um, <laughs> I, I to be honest, I think I'd go for the Ruxton. <laughs> what uh, what happened to the Ruxton Car Company? Did somebody acquire them? Did they go to business? Well, Ruxton had this the same problem that a lot of a lot of manufacturers had, and that was the the Great Depression. Um, mm-hmm. There was an awful lot of optimism, you know, during the mid to late twenties about what people could build, and and there was a big appetite for exciting, fancy. Um, sporty cars, and then the depression hit, and things got really serious really fast. Um, coupled with the fact that the front-wheel drive mechanism was just a little bit under-engineered, they were still kind of feeling their way with front-wheel drive. Uh, it didn't work as well as, as as they were hoping, and they had some problems with the system. Uh, and also, they didn't, you know, they had problems spooling up production. That car was built in a couple different places, and... Um, it, it, they just really never got the uh, the economy of scale that you'd need to to be successful in, in in that kind of market. So they had two different plants. Was each plant building um, an entire run of a certain car, or did they maybe do the chassis in one plant, ship it, and do the body in another plant? Well, there were there were different things. They were um, some of them were made at the uh, Moon factory in St. Louis, Missouri, and others were made at the Kissel factory in Hartford, Wisconsin. Um, so, so you had a couple of um, manufacturers that were actually kind of kind of at the end of the line, um, who who had available production capacity and said, well, why not? Let's you know keep our people busy building building this other car, uh, and they did. Um, uh, bodies uh, were made by the uh, Bud Company of, uh, uh, of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and um, uh, were you know specially specially designed and engineered for the chassis. But they were but the but the frame the the chassis frames and uh, and the mechanism were all were all um, put together at 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 these um, uh, other other places in St. Louis and uh, Wisconsin. Mm, just logistically, that uh, you can see where the expense of that car came in. Um, that's you know three three places that aren't terribly close together. Well, it didn't help. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Well, when um when I mentioned the Peterson Museum to people, um, I think the first thing they say is, "Don't they have that big black Rolls Royce with a weird fin on the back?" Um, I think uh, that's kind of become one of your signature signature pieces on um, the, uh, it was a, they call it the round door rolls. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Kim, you're exactly right. It is called the round door rolls, and that's because it has round doors. It has two almost perfectly uh, round doors, one on each side. Um, this car was built during the heyday of the Concord d'Elegance, and as you um, so perfectly mentioned, it was 
intended to to uh, help set off um, a lady's uh, fashion or a gentleman's fashion of the day. You would drive up in front of a long row of judges, get out of the car, pose with the car, walk around it perhaps, and get back in it and drive off. And the uh, hopefully you would make a, a kind of spellbinding effect that the judges would be very taken by and then award your car a prize. Uh, and that's what this car was all about. It was designed to win Concord, and it, indeed it won the um, Prix d'Honneur at uh, Cannes in 1936, which is against some pretty stiff competition. So uh, very, very long car, very, very heavy car. Um, it, it's theoretically a four-seater, but comfortably seats two, one in each front seat. Um, the back slopes so dramatically. It's such a such a dramatic fast back that there's really not a lot of headroom in the rear seat. And it's too bad that this is this is radio um, because literally um, it's a suicide kind of a suicide door, and when it opens, it is a perfect round circle, and then um, the top of the circle is the window, and if I remember correctly. The window rolls up and down, kind of like uh, reminds me of two things: the motion of a windshield wiper, um, or one of those fans that the ladies of the day used to keep themselves cool. Um, it's just, uh, it's absolutely fascinating. Exactly. Um, picture, picture a fan, uh, and the the window is is divided vertically right in the middle. Uh, it's it's a a half um, a semicircle when you turn the crank um, each section goes down individually in kind of a fan pattern it's it's actually one of the few cars where opening the window is very dramatic <laughs> and the uh, um, the car is black the interior is uh, kind of somewhere between burgundy and like blood red and then it's got the typical chrome uh, shiny Rolls-Royce grill might have been nickel back then, but the shiny Rolls-Royce grill. But we think of a Rolls-Royce grill as being absolutely vertical, straight up and down. Um, this one kind of angles back, which is interesting. And then there's this just tremendous singular wing on this beautiful arched back. I think the wing's something like 18 inches. Um, what's the purpose of the wing? What did it do? Well, theoretically, um, wings or, or fins, as they sometimes call them, um, would help stabilize cars at very, very high speeds. But my hunch, it was just for dramatic effect. Um, because this is built during the Art Deco period, and during this time, a lot of designers were looking to the sky for their inspiration and deriving a lot of that inspiration from, from airplanes. So so my hunch is that, that the 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 shape of the car and also the extremely large fin, I believe it, would, it is about 18 inches tall by the time it gets to the very back. Um, I, I, I think it was more a styling exercise than it was for function, but uh, it, certainly, <laughs> it, it certainly captures your attention. Now, did they worry about performance at all? You know, this car was very much, it was, it's like a, like a custom-made gown. It was built to win a show. It was built for style. It's all about style. Did they worry about power and stopping and handling, or were those things completely secondary? The, those things were secondary. When you built a car to win a Concorde Elegance, uh, you built a car to look good and um, and and 
serve as an appropriate background for you and whatever it was you were wearing and, and whoever it was you were with. That's, that's what that car is, is about. But make no mistake, it's a Rolls Royce under, under that skin, and it's a very powerful, very quiet car. It just glides along. It's, it's as much fun um, to, to watch as it is to ride in. It's, it's, it's really sensational, and it does stop traffic. It's the only car I've ever been in where people walking on the sidewalk, even in Los Angeles, will just freeze in their tracks to look at it go by. It, it really, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, and it's black, so it take and it takes a lot to stop traffic in Los Angeles, especially uh, especially where you are, because there's uh, there's plenty out there. Now this is back in the era when uh, the chassis was usually built by. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. With all the back and forth in today's politics... It seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about antique car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. We're back on the Classic Car Show with uh, Leslie Kendall from the Peterson Automotive Museum. And uh, a car that uh, truly is uh, like no other would be, uh, everybody remembers the Back to the Future DeLorean. And they're famously uh, stainless steel. I think I've seen one or two painted. Um, But for the first time when I visited the Peterson Museum, I saw one that was 24 karat gold. Can you tell us about that, Leslie? Well, you bet. That car was um, uh, every bit of DeLorean, but what made it special was a genuine gold plating. It was 24-karat gold plating, and it was uh, sold out of the American Express uh, Christmas catalog. The idea was to buy one of these gold DeLoreans with your American Express gold card. It was kind of the way they promoted the new, their uh their gold cards, um, and um, I think it, you know, it might have taken a while to pay up, pay it off uh, in the 1980s because they were $85,000 brand new, and I think it's still the only car in our collection whose value goes up and down with the precious metals market because it is genuine 24 karat gold plated, uh, one of only um, three that were three ever built. Wow, so a regular DeLorean was what, roughly $25,000 maybe? Yeah, maybe maybe even a little bit less than that, but but about that, it was still a very special car, pricey for the day, and this was really something. If you if you had one of these, uh, you, you you're a pretty special person. In fact, the fellow that 
that owned ours, uh, brand new, had a bank in Texas, and he built a special enclosure, a glass enclosure for the car in the, and that he put it in the lobby of his bank. And when the bank, you know, when he sold the bank or, or dissolved those assets, um, he called us up and asked us if we wanted it. And it took me about half a second to say yes. Um, <laughs> we're very happy to have it. I mean, to have a DeLorean, every car collection needs a DeLorean. It's kind of a, it's something you have to talk about in the history of automobiles, but not everybody, not everybody can have a gold DeLorean. And we're so, so happy to, to have been able to add it to our collection. Yeah, a DeLorean to me is a car that uh, the regular stainless steel version um, should be worth a lot more than it is. Um, I'm still hoping that those uh, those eventually take off. They had a little bit of a resurgence with the anniversary of the Back to the Future movie, which maybe was last year or something like that. But um, one of the things with them is that kind of brushed stainless steel finish um, was difficult to clean. Um, I can't imagine what gold finish is like and even you know museums don't like people touching things because the oil from fingers and things creates wear um would that happen with the gold car do you have to keep people from touching it is it possible to clean a 24 karat gold plated car or you know you just have to uh, hope for the best well, we do we we do prevent people from touching it. It's it it has not even ten miles on it. It's ex, it's just perfectly new condition, um, and and really driving that car, operating it is not what it's about anymore. That car is strictly about really being a, a kind of art object, a you know a precious metal uh, art object, if you if you will. Uh, and there are ways to clean it, though. If something happens, it, it, it gets dusty, just like any other car. And, and you, you know, you're careful how you dust it. You use something that's that's not uh, abrasive um, uh, when you clean it, because the gold will rub off um, over time. Because it is 24 karat gold, but it's it's plated, and and it, uh, yeah, it the gold does have a lifetime. And you just mm -hmm. uh, you, you don't you don't want to scrub too hard if something happens to it. <laughs> But uh, we brought up a, a really interesting, uh, touched on a very interesting topic there. You said that uh, the man owned the bank and called you, offered you the car, and, of course, you snapped it right up. Um, is it common that people call the museum wanting to give you cars? Um, I'm sure there's some great ones and there's some not-so-great ones. How many calls like that do you get a year and you have to turn a lot of cars away? Well, you know, we're so lucky um, that we're we're pretty well known, and, and people, you know, think of us when they're when it's time to find the new cars a home. Um, we we can't take everything, but I'd like to hear about everything because there's some cars that you wouldn't expect we would want that that I'd really like to add to the collection. Um, I'd certainly like to have a Miller, which is built by Harry Miller right here in Los Angeles, a, um, a front-wheel drive car if it happens. Um, it's just, just a, a jewel me mechanically. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind a 1971 Ford Pinto because that spoke to an era of, of uh, history that's, that's long forgotten. When was the last time anybody saw a Pinto on the street, for example? It's extremely unusual, and it, it highlights the fact that sometimes cars are important for what they are. Sometimes they're important for what they're not. 
that a Pinto was my first car. Um, so that uh, has a special meaning to me, and I bought it because Kate Jackson drove one on Charlie's Angels, and <laughs> she was she was the cool angel that liked cars and played sports and wasn't afraid to mess up her hair. So, <laughs> and there you go. Here we, We've got, um, we just had, uh, we have the Carlisle Collector Car Events. We just had Ford Carlisle, and I believe they, they have the Pinto Club that comes every year. I think it's the one of one of the largest gatherings of Pintos anywhere in the country. There's maybe 200 of them. Um, and there's a guy every year that brings a perfectly restored Kate Jackson Pinto, which was orange with an all-glass hatchback, and a yellow and orange plaid interior, and he also has a life-size figurine of Kate Jackson. <laughs> and I really That's a dedicated that fan. That's Every a dedicated year fan. I consider fan. asking him if he would sell that car because I would very much like to own it. So <laughs> you uh, you hit a chord there with the Pinto. Um, if we've got uh, got about five minutes left of the show. Um, tell us about a few other really special cars you have in the museum. Well, we've got we've got quite a few things. Um, a couple other that that um, uh, you know really capture a lot of attention with visitors. Uh, w- one of them is our 1953 Cadillac. Uh, not just any Cadillac, though. It's got this body that was custom built by Ghia of Italy. One of only two ever done by Ghia on the 53 Cadillac. Uh, originally owned by uh, actress Rita Hayworth and reportedly purchased for her by Ali Khan, um, son of the Aga Khan, uh, then the world's wealthiest man. Um, apparently was um, um, kind of trying to patch things up um, a little bit with Rita Hayworth and got her this car. And uh, this car, uh, there, there were two that were built. The twin to this car appeared on the January 1955 issue of Road and Track magazine. Um, this car did not appear on that magazine. It was, it was actually pictured, though, in other magazines uh, when new it was painted white. Uh, a color that really doesn't suit it. Right now it's painted a deep metallic maroon, which suits the lines, we think, um, really, really nicely. It actually won uh, best in class at Pebble Beach some years ago, too, when it was uh, freshly restored. I wonder what it did with his uh, for his relationship with Rita Hayworth. Oh, <laughs> oh God, I don't know. I'd have probably dated him. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I if I if I'd have gotten that fifty three Gia Cadillac brand new, that probably probably wouldn't have been a bad thing. Um, but it really, you know, having a, a special Italian body on a Cadillac is is in a way like having um, you know a Pantera. You get you get an American underpinnings that are reliable and 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 really bulletproof, uh, wrapped in a sexy Italian body, wrapped in sexy. Coachwork, and so you look good going down the road, and uh, you, you you know that at the end of the day, it's going to get you home still. Gia was amazing. Um, don't you have? A, I'm thinking it's green, like a Gia-bodied Plymouth um, kind of show car. We indeed do. We indeed do. A 1954 uh, Plymouth Explorer, which was Plymouth's, today they call them concept cars, but back in uh, the 50s they they used to call them dream cars. These are cars that, um, like today, uh, manufacturers would put on the floor of auto shows and things like that to kind of tempt people over to their their areas, their booths, so they can 
maybe sell them something a, a little bit um, a little bit more practical. It's like you know a lot of dealers have convertibles in their in their showrooms, not because they expect to sell a lot of them, but because they can maybe talk you into a two door sedan once they have you in the showroom. So <laughs> that's what that's what you know these dream cars are meant. They're meant to 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 show people how how advanced uh, the manufacturers are thinking that and and that a lot of that advanced thinking um, that they hope you will think you know rubbed off on on the production car that you're about to buy. So Gia was a coach builder, I guess they they never built a car. Is that correct? They were strictly a coach builder. Not entirely two. Gia actually did build two cars. Um, they built a car called the um, uh, the Gia L six point four, which was actually the second version of um, a vehicle called the Dual Gia. That was in the early sixties, about nineteen sixty one, sixty two. Uh, and then, and a few years later, they built a car called the four fifty SS, um, which was on a Plymouth Barracuda chassis. And those are badged Gias. They weren't badged Plymouth and they weren't, weren't badged um, Chrysler. They were both badged as Gia uh, automobiles. So they actually did, even though they were a coach builder, they did, they did um, you know, um, fully assemble a cars that, that bore their name. Uh, and that was a, a 1962 on the, the Barracuda chassis? Um, that was a little bit later. That would have been about 60. Seven sixty-eight, uh, something like that, on the uh, Plymouth Barracuda chassis. Barracuda. That would have been the Gia oh. four fifty SS, okay. and the Gia L six point four, which was a car that's pretty well known for its Rat Pack connections. Um, Dean Martin had one, Sinatra had one. Um, that that car was built on uh, Chrysler mechanicals. Had uh, you know, very very powerful Chrysler uh, V eight engine of the day. Wow! Do you know how many four fifty SSs they built? Uh, maybe about 24, 25, a very, very small number. A very beautiful car, just just gorgeous. Um, again, it's obviously Italian. Obviously, a lot of handwork went into it. It's not a car that you want to um, bang into anything with because it's very, very expensive to repair. The, 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 the creases in the coachwork are, are so precise and so, and so beautifully rendered that... Um, um, it's, it's just, it, it's, it's a thing of beauty. It's a car to behold. Uh, would those then, what, 318s or 340s, maybe? Um, I think it, probably 318. I think that's, that's, I think it'd be reasonable to think. Now, I don't know. I mean, they were very expensive when they were new, so my hunch is that maybe the engines got a little bit of attention, uh, above and beyond. But really, again, the idea was to put, um, a regular, Quote regular American car in a in a sexy um, outfit, and that's what they that's exactly what they did. That's exactly what they did. That's, uh, yeah, and then Gia, that's the same Gia that we think of for Volkswagen Carmen Gia. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Um, Gia designed cars for industry too, and they designed the Volkswagen Carmen Gia. And the reason they call it Carmen Gia is because it was. Um, Designed by Gia of Italy, but it was made by Carmen of Germany. Uh, Carmen was a coach builder in its own right. He used to, you know, design cars and, and build cars. But they had the production capacity to build the um, this uh, Volkswagen sports car that that Gia did not. So, so they undertook to uh, to do that, and hence the name Carmen Gia. Uh, is Gia still a valid company? Gia is still out there. Gia is still mm-hmm. in their in their in their pitch and um uh and 
still doing some very some very interesting things and very highly highly regarded. He is just beautiful, beautiful work. Uh, very Italian through and through. Well, come on down the corner of Wilshire and Fairfax, petersen.org, and that's S-E-N uh, for Petersen. So visit us online, visit us at the museum, and, uh, you know, we look forward to welcoming you. And thanks to everybody for listening to the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio, and catch us again next week. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport.